yeah, it does hold up. Chinatown is kind of timeless in that way. There was a podcast called The Sequelcast that talked about movies. Movies. And they also talked about something else called boobies. Boobies. Oh, it's The Sequelcast. Oh yeah, The Sequelcast. It's the sequelcast. Hello and welcome to the Sequelcast. The Sequelcast is a podcast about movies in a franchise, looking at movies uh, one film at a time. I'm your host, Uncle Milkshake. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Howdy. And uh, this time around, we just wrapped up a bunch of episodes on Ninja Turtles movies, and we're going a bit more highbrow. Uh, this time we're looking at Chinatown, and next week we'll be looking at The Two Jakes. With us, we have a special guest, uh, Dennis McDougall, who wrote a book, Five Easy Decades, How Jack Nicholson Became the Biggest Movie Star in Modern Times. Uh, Dennis, welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you, Uncle. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Now, Jack Nicholson, he's such a great actor, but besides all that, you just, you think of his face and those eyes and that eyebrow and that forehead. It's so much that's unforgettable. When was the first time you ever saw Jack Nicholson in a film? Oh, wow. Uh, let's see. I guess the first time I saw him was um, in the original um, um, Roger Corman movie. Um, Is it The Terror? The Little House of, or no, The Little Shop the, of uh, Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. That's yeah, Roger. Where? Wow, it's a, he's he's in there for the save, you know. I mean, my my Alzheimer's sets in, and there he is. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was first time. I, that's the first time I saw him, uh, and that was gosh, I, that was uh, that was produced way the heck back in like 1960, 61, something like that. Uh, he was he, he was cast as um, uh, as the uh, not the dentist, but the dentist's patient. Either the patient that was really into pain. Yeah, right. Who really? Yeah, and and uh, he he was um, uh, he was Jack even back then. I mean, if you ever you know if you if you can get the film and look at it, you can uh, you can see all of the promise that uh, uh, that is to come. You know, ten and twenty and and, and gosh, I don't know, fifty years later. Uh, it's quintessential Jack, even though he was uh, barely out of diapers. So, yeah, so that was the first time. The second time, um, what was the second time? Oh, I know, that was another Corman movie. Uh, and, you know, back in the 60s, it was like, um, uh, you know, you'd go, to, you'd go to the matinees and um, the best stuff uh, outside of uh, Lash LaRue. And uh, the uh, the serials uh, were, were the Corman uh, uh, crapola horror movies. And, uh, there was one called uh, uh, was it the Terror or something like that. Yeah, the, the Terror. He played uh, Andre Duvalier. Yeah, where? Yeah, exactly. Where he was? Uh, he was. Um, I remember he he, he uh, that was one of the. I think that may have been the only movie in which he co-starred with uh, uh, the, the only woman he ever actually married. Um, she, hmm. 
uh, he he rescued her. And he was wearing a Napoleonic uh, uh, uniform. He's uh, you know dressed up like a, a French uh, soldier, and he was wading into the water to to save her. I think Francis Coppola actually directed that. He actually, yeah, he does have a directing credit with Corman. It's also apparently produced part of it as well. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, that was he was awful in that movie too. I mean, uh, far worse, in fact, than uh, than he was in uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, but uh, yeah, Jack had a, a distinguished career as a Z movie actor before uh, Easy Rider. I'm not sure that you know everybody is aware of that. They sort of have that. They sort of have that in the back of their mind. But uh, he's a veteran of close to two dozen movies by the time um, he and Dennis Hopper hooked up and did uh, did Easy Rider, which is when his career as a legitimate actor really began. Yeah, so, one, what else? What else? Uh, I'm going to say, you know, like one Jack Nicholson movie I wish would have been made is he was in talks to do a, a Napoleon movie starring as Napoleon, and it was to be directed by Stanley Kubrick. Oh, wow. Right. And Yes. Yeah, that was lost. And in fact, you know, Jack, um, um, even after the fact, after Kubrick uh, uh, deep-sixed the project, uh, Jack got the rights on... Uh, and held the rights and was developing this book for, gosh, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 years. Uh, it, it was um, uh, a, a book that was written by a couple of uh, quasi-historians back in, uh, I want to say, the mid to late 70s. But the book was about um, the premise that Napoleon was was actually murdered, that he was poisoned on uh, uh, while he was in, in exile on the uh, Isle of uh, Elba, I guess it was. And uh, he, he was killed because they were afraid that uh, somehow he was going to make a comeback and, uh, you know, once again conquer or attempt to conquer Europe. So uh, it was sort of like the plot to kill Napoleon and... Uh, Jack was going was was trying to get that developed as a uh, a property for himself. I guess it ultimately lapsed and never went anywhere. There were two or three, maybe more, projects like that that he tried to uh, develop for himself, but nothing uh, nothing ever came of it, which is kind of sad, you know. Sort of like the the lost Orson Welles projects. You know, we'll, we'll, oh yes, yeah. we'll never see Don Quixote, and isn't that a shame? What's the uh, what, what inspired you to do the uh, Jack Nicholson biography? Were you were you just a, a fan, or had had someone approached you to bring your talents to it? Well, yes. A publisher asked me uh, if I would be interested in doing another biography because I'd had uh, two uh, pretty successful ones, and um, I said, "Well, what do you have in mind?" And the uh, the publishers said uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, one other well-known comedian, and I could take my choice, and I said, well, I I like Nicholson well enough, but I'm not sure that 
there's that much to be had there. Uh, I, let me take a look at it, and I'll get back to you. So six months later, after I'd done all of my reading and some basic research and made a field trip to um, his boyhood home in New Jersey, um, I decided that um, there was indeed um, an untold story to be tapped, and, uh, and I went ahead and leaped into it. And, um, you know, I, I, as you start out with any of these projects, I, I, I started out as a fan, and, um, and I was a fan after I'd finished, but um, I guess maybe an enlightened fan. Um, one of the downsides of doing a, a biography, a thorough biography on someone, is that um, you have to ultimately put your hero worship aside because what you ultimately find out is that they have feet of clay just like everybody else. And that can be, I don't know, sobering at best, disappointing at worst. So there you have it. While doing the research for the book, and you had to watch all the different movies uh, Jack Nicholson has been a part of, is there any movies that popped up that were sort of a pleasant surprise, where it might have been something you've seen before, or maybe not, but it was something that stuck out as, oh, this is a pretty decent picture that maybe a lot of people might not have seen? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can go down the list with, uh, there's there's a, a, a long list with, uh, with Nicholson. Um you know, among some of his uh, earlier movies, uh, The King of Marvin Gardens, um, you know, I would guess that one-tenth of one percent of your listening audience even knows what it was, but, uh, but he made it in um, the early 70s before Cuckoo's Nest and before Chinatown, and he played, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, an against type mousy um, kind of a guy wears wears glasses uh, has a swaggering older brother played by Bruce Stern. Um, but, you know it's, it was a quirky kind of uh, bit of business, but um, conceived and directed by uh, the same guy who directed uh, Five Easy Pieces. I don't know, kind of an outstanding um, early dramatic turn, I think. Uh, among my favorite, least seen um, Jack Nicholson movies is uh, one that he made in 2000, directed by Sean Penn, called The Pledge, which, um, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's uh, well worth the cost of the DVD. Um, probably one of the last really good roles that uh, Nicholson had. I think the last good role that he had was in About Schmidt, and previous to that it was probably The Pledge. I mean, he, he was uh, you know, really an arresting kind of uh, uh, dramatic, sad, dramatic, tragic uh, role, and he really brought uh, all of his acting chops to the, to the part. Um, what else? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a whole slew of, of great Nicholson gems that have been seldom seen, and uh, and you know he's 
he's good. I mean, you know, I, it's kind of sad in a way. You see these guys like uh, De Niro and Dustin Hoffman and uh, Ed Nicholson, and they get to a certain uh, certain age in uh, in their their careers. You know, they've they've won all of the laurels. And, uh, you know, they've 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 done everything, paid all their dues. Uh, had all of the great roles and then they just start phoning it in and you know and taking schlock stuff you know doing uh, meet the folkers or uh, uh, whatever some they're notoriously doing it for the money I guess or Sure. I mean, I I think a movie like that I was fairly disappointed in, although it wasn't a Jack Nicholson movie. Um, Let me look up the title really quick. But Al Pacino finally did a a movie where he co-starred with Robert De Niro, and it was a crime thriller. Oh, uh, yeah. From a few years ago, and it was god-awful. Bad. That was (laughs) anchor. Oh, big time. And uh, let's see. Righteous Kill, I think, is the name of that one. Oh, man. And that you have this yeah. opportunity where even though they've been in a few movies before, you really have them as co-stars, as a, as old police partners doing one last case. You think you could have done at least something okay out of that, but it's a bit disappointing. And Jack Nicholson, I, I think as he's gotten older, has certainly gotten a bit more choosy in what he does for the, for the most part. You know, he might have done anger management with Adam Sandler, but he didn't do three of them. Like uh, like De Niro did with Meet the Fockers with Ben Stiller. Well, that's true. Uh, I you know I mean I think the last couple that he's done have been questionable. I wasn't a big fan of the Bucket List, uh, uh, and you know, even though he got lots of print and press and kudos for uh, uh, The Departed, I uh, I was not a big fan of that either. I, nonetheless, I mean you know they were at least memorable roles and boy that uh, <laughs> righteous kill um, that's uh, that'll be as memorable as plan nine from outer space I think. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, that so. with that let's move on to uh, Chinatown uh, let's do let's move to Chinatown I, I haven't had anything to eat yet <laughs> <laughs> It's going to get some mushu pork, but... Uh, I'm so. going to get a big bowl of that uh, chow mein. Ooh, looks tasty. Uh, uh, yeah, right. So, Chinatown, it's one of those movies where I joke, uh, like Thrasher and I were in our late 20s, we're a bit younger, but for me, Chinatown, I associate with uh, taking some film courses in college. If you ever take a intro to film history course, there's either going to be a photo of Chinatown on the cover of that book, or there's going to be mention within the first page of the introduction of that textbook. It's yeah, I think I think I have spent more time studying Chinatown than I have actually spent watching Chinatown, uh, especially when I was going for my minor in film all those years ago. <laughs> I see. <laughs> okay, well, jeez, uh, I don't know where to begin. Um, Chinatown, yeah, China, well, Chinatown is, uh, I think, on everybody, or ought to be on everybody's uh, uh, are, you, are, you, are you having stomach problems there, Thrasher? Oh, no, not at the moment. I have a... Oh. I, I, I do 
my my recording of this in I have kind of a home office and it has a window that, that's right over the parking lot for the for the apartment where I live. So anytime some jerk comes by uh, revving his engine, it always gets picked up by the mic in here. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. It's a nice. Uh, you know, it's got comic relief. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you hear a weird noise, it's probably something I'm picking up through this one window. Yeah, no. Well, at least you don't uh, uh, don't need to see a gastrointestinal uh, specialist, I guess. Which is <laughs> goodness. Goodness. Anyway, uh, Chinatown. Well, you know, I mean, I, you you could go on for for days about Chinatown. First of all, uh, Town's script. Um, was a masterpiece. I, you know, I, I, I have my own feelings about Robert Town as an individual, but uh, when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to that screenplay, um, uh, it, it, Chinatown and Citizen King are probably the two best screenplays that have ever come out of Hollywood. It's, uh, it, it's, um, it's flawless. I mean, it's lean. The, the, thing, the story behind the screenplay, though, is that, uh, as, as you may or may not know, uh, is that uh, uh, the original screenplay, which was typical of town, uh, was much, much longer than that which you saw on the screen. It was only uh, after uh, Polanski went in with a meat cleaver and uh, cleaned it up and cut off the old ending and uh, um, added um, the bullet in the back of Faye Dunaway's head um, that we got what we ultimately saw on the screen. Um, The town uh, was and continues to be notorious for uh, writing twice as long as is necessary. We can all use a good editor, but um, him especially. Anyway, um, the um, you know the architecture of uh, of Chinatown is splendid. It's spare. Uh, it's uh, uh, it, it, it hits all the bases. It's the sort of thing that uh, should be taught for the first. Uh, two to three weeks of any screenwriting class because if you can understand and digest what, uh, how the story is built in Chinatown, you can translate that to uh, virtually any genre and, uh, and develop a hell of a story. Um, as far as I, the, the thing that I, I find most uh, delicious about Chinatown is that Nicholson's own personal story uh, resonates with uh, that of the characters in in in, uh, in the story of Chinatown. I mean, you know, it, uh, the whole notion of uh, you know, you're my mother, you're my sister, <laughs> as, as you may or may not know, uh, is, uh, is the, the story or the, the, the mystery 
because uh, in a way it still continues to be a mystery, uh, of Jack Nicholson's youth. His, his mother was his sister, and his grandmother posed as his mother because his mother, uh, who died young of uh, cancer in the early 1960s, had an affair with, uh, well, she had multiple affairs <laughs> uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, but one of those affairs resulted in her being impregnated uh, with Jack. And uh, back in those days, along the Jersey Shore, it was verboten to have a child out of wedlock, especially uh, if you came from uh, Irish Catholic stock, as did the Nicholson. So um, she was shipped off to New York and quietly had the baby and then um, came back to uh, uh, Neptune, New Jersey, where uh, Jack grew up uh, and acted as if nothing had happened and just gave the baby to her mother to raise. So Jack was always under the impression until uh, probably the mid-60s. I mean, he tells everybody, or part of the Jack mythology is that he didn't know until somebody called him from Time magazine in 19... I don't know, 74, 75, uh, the truth of his birth. But he probably knew earlier. Uh, the people that I, the sources that I spoke with for my book said that uh, he alluded to the fact that his sister was actually his mother uh, clear back in, in the mid-60s. The, the, resonant, the resonating um, aspects of his own birth uh, you see playing into the plot in Chinatown, where Faye Dunaway, not unlike Jack's mother, uh, is impregnated and has a secret child. And uh, I, I, I always found that, uh, that part of the story to be uh, particularly fascinating. And I've often wondered if Town uh, knew any of that when he worked it into the original script. Uh, his ex-wife is a very good friend of mine, and she says that no, he did not. And she should know because she was uh, she was with him and did a lot of the, um, the basic research about uh, early Los Angeles for him when uh, he was writing the script. But I, I, I can't help but feel that somehow uh, Town must have known that or channeled it or something because it's just too perfect, too perfect a story. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, stop me. Oh, no, sure. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, uh, speak, speaking of Town, I've been, I've been reading Harlan Ellison's Watching, and he, he recounts an anecdote. Uh, Harlan Nelson recounts uh, some information about town, but that apparently the the actual historical water and power scandal uh, that that serves as part of the background for this movie that apparently uh, 
Robert Towns' parents were defrauded or, or suffered terribly financially because of that. And part of the impetus behind writing this movie was to get a kind of cinematic revenge against the people behind the water and power scandal. Um, are you talking about the, the um, when you say the water and, and power scandal, are you talking about uh, uh, way back in 19... 19- when Mulholland brought the water from uh, uh, brought the water from uh, from Bishop to Los Angeles. That, that, that may have had been it. The, the anecdote in the essay that I read was was more about a town itself and getting to the specific details of the history. Mm-hmm. Well, his father was into real estate, uh, but they uh, you know they lived in and. Town and his brother Roger both grew up in in San Pedro. Not um, uh, so. I, I'm not certain how they would have been uh, affected by um, by the original um, uh, theft of the water. Uh, the, the the basis of of, uh, of Chinatown. Uh, I suppose it could have been conduit of investment money, but but I'll admit I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the the underlying story of Chinatown, of course, is based uh, on the facts of uh, uh, of uh, Mulholland, the after whom the highway is named, uh, and the original city engineer for the city of Los Angeles uh, after the turn of the, the 20th century, um, you know, Mulholland was the architect for the uh, the theft of uh, the Owens Valley water, um, that whole swath of land behind uh, uh, due east, southeast, I guess, of the Sierra Nevada mountains, uh, which is now relegated to desert for the most part, was once once a uh, a valley uh, which uh, the Owens River flowed through and among the most fertile farmland uh, in the western United States and um, through a uh, a bond uh, sale that was approved by the voters of Los Angeles Around 19, I want to say 1904, 1905. Um, slowly, the city of Los Angeles um, secretly bought up the property along the river, along the Owens River, uh, all the way from the city of Bishop um, down to the Mojave Desert itself and uh, began preparing to build this aqueduct that would carry the water from the Owens River uh, and dump it into the San Fernando Valley. Uh, monumental undertaking. Mulholland was uh, the, uh, the guy who made it happen. And uh, when the farmers of uh, the Owens Valley finally figured out what was going on, it was too late. And uh, the water was essentially stolen and 
dumped into the the San Fernando Valley, and uh, and became you know helped Los Angeles um, develop into the megalopolis that it is today. Uh, so in the meantime, you know you had these water wars going on between the the farmers in Owens Valley and uh, the land developers who wanted the water for Los Angeles. That was the uh, that was to my understanding, the original uh, water and power scandal that you're talking about. And that predated um, uh, Robert, Robert Town's folks by a number of years. And Chinatown itself, of course, set in the 1930s, which was like, I don't know, 25 years after the, the actual water and power department scandal. Um, so, yeah, a lot of liberties taken in terms of uh, the retelling of history. But uh, I think maybe what you're talking about, though, Thrasher, maybe the the Union Station, uh, which was a, a different scandal, but it may well have affected uh, Tom's parents because uh, Union Station was built in um, mid-1930s in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, and the towns may have had investments then uh, in in downtown L.A. I'm not certain of this, but this is far more likely. That may be where, uh, where your information is coming from. <laughs> I was going to say about Chinatown, one thing that struck me upon watching uh, the movie to prepare for this show is even though at the time when it came out, 1974, the idea of... A wait, wait, wait a second. What? Wait, wait. Uh, milkshake, uh, you yes. actually prepared for this show? A little bit. I, I saw the movie. Oh, my God. But, uh, well, see, if I'd known about this, if I'd known that you were supposed to prepare for this, I... <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody, nobody let me in on that. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, oh, I, I was going to say, even though when this movie came out, and uh, I wasn't alive when this came out, but in 1974, uh, the idea of a detective movie would have been an old-fashioned idea, and yet I think it was filmed in a way that holds up very well today. You have a lot. You have some use of a handheld camera. It follows uh, the Jack Nicholson, the uh, the Giddy, Jake Giddy's character, throughout the whole movie. And uh, as you mentioned before, the script is very airtight. I think it, it flows very well. And that even though it's in the 70s, I think Chinatown is is a movie that feels more modern in some ways than its sequel, The Two Jakes, which uh, came out in 1990. We are speaking... Ah, well, uh, the, the Two Jakes, that's a, that's a whole different story with all kinds of uh, uh, Hollywood intrigue and backstory uh, that... Uh... Uh, we can go into at a later date uh, that turned it into a grand piece of crap, um, <laughs> which is sad because you know originally what Town had planned to do was make a trilogy. It was not to be just two movies; it was to be three. And uh, if it had been, you know, if they had been executed properly, the the way that he originally envisioned. Uh, could have been, you know, could have been a, a, a rival to uh, to the Godfather trilogy as as a 
you know, kind of a quasi-history of the evolution of Los Angeles from a Pueblo to a megalopolis. But it didn't work out that way, sadly enough. So I, I uh, yeah, it does hold up. Uh, Chinatown, um, Chinatown is kind of timeless in that way. Uh, I, I think it, um, it brought to the screen uh, some of the best aspects of film noir as it was developed throughout the 1940s. Um, I think the sensibility is that of uh, you know, Philip Marlowe and uh, uh, Sam Spade, um, all of the you know the great um, uh, early pulp mystery. Uh, fiction, uh, it, it all comes together nicely in Chinatown, and I don't, uh, I, there are a few movies that have approached it in terms of, um, you know, overall quality, simplicity of story, and yet, uh, complexity of character, uh, the, the right kind of recipe that, uh, it really makes for uh, uh, riveting uh, suspense drama. But I think Chinatown is probably uh, uh, in a class pretty much to itself. And I think of the usual suspects. Um, ooh, what else? I don't know. Um, Seven's pretty good. Um, I, I'm a... I'm a big fan of Zodiac, even though, you know, a good many uh, people stayed away from the box office when it came out a few years ago. Those those are all good kind of uh, atmospheric uh, uh, mystery romps, but Chinatown is still the best. I like that you brought up the usual suspects, because that's something I was thinking of watching uh, Chinatown again. And that it's one of those movies that once you see the ending and how these different characters develop, you have a whole new view on the characters and their relationships. And the second time or the third time or the fourth time you watch the movie, you can view it in a completely different light. Right. It's one of those few big reveal movies where the movie continues to hold up to repeated viewings even after you know the reveal. Oh, sure. Well, hey, you know, Rosebud, dude. (laughs) Sure. It turns out Rosebud was dead the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, we do know what Rosebud is, though, right? Oh, we do. Yeah, Citizen Kane. Yes, Citizen Kane. It's a sled. And what what, what is Rosebud in Citizen Kane, guys? It's the name of his uh, sled. It's the sled, but it's also... uh symbolic of, of the the one time in his life where he could you could he could really consider himself happy <laughs> all right well here's a little bombshell for your podcast because I oh. assume you don't know this story um, citizen Kane is based on the life of William Randolph Hearst oh you yes this, right yep uh, from the Hearst newspapers yes Hearst newspapers uh, and William Randolph Hearst was probably the single most powerful uh, uh, figure in journalism in the 20th century. 
sort of the Rupert Murdoch of his day, if you will. And William Randolph Hearst uh, was married and had uh, four sons. Uh, and then he um, fell for um, a, a young would-be comedian named Marion Davy. Uh, his wife, uh, who I believe was Catholic, Phoebe Apperson Hurst, refused to give him a divorce. So he just set her up for life and uh, took care of his children, and he and Marion Davies went off and built Hurst Castle uh, and, you know, lived out the rest of their lives as the master and mistress of uh, Hurst Castle. So... That's the real-life story upon which Citizen Hearst is based. Um, now, here's the backstory that uh, you probably don't know. Um, Marion Davies' nephew was a, a close friend of Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur uh, and other screenwriters in early Hollywood. His name was Charles Letterer. Now, Charles Letterer was also very good friends with Henry Mankiewicz, who was working on this secret script for Orson Welles at the time, uh, Citizen Kane. Um, and they had any number of lengthy discussions about uh, Citizen Kane and William Randolph Hearst um, over martinis at Musso and Franks. And one of the stories that Charles Letterer told Mankiewicz is that William Randolph Hearst had a pet name for Marion Davies' clitoris. <laughs> uh, yes. And what do you suppose that name was? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be Rosebud, the direction we've been going. I believe you've got that right. There's no dust on Thrasher. He's figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a story I did not know. You don't hear that in film school, that's for sure. Uh, well, no, uh, I don't guess it's bandied about in film school, uh, school but, uh, um, but I can assure you that it is, in fact, true because I uh, got it from... Uh, Charles Letter's um, uh, stepdaughter, who oh. also happens to be Robert Towns' ex-wife. So, what else did they teach you in film school that I can disabuse you of? I'm going to check. Is does that count as the dirtiest tangent we've ever had on this podcast? Um, it might be one of the more dirty tangents. I, I don't. I don't think it's in. Poor taste. It's difficult to get in poor taste in this show. What is that? Dirty tangents? What's this dirty tangents? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think I... Some, sometimes we we talk about you know, movie sequels often are not up to the original, and, and sometimes we talk about a movie where we'll get bored and we'll get onto these other uh, ridiculous tangents. Uh, the one I can think of off the top of my head um, is something I read in a in an interview where uh, at some point, I'm trying to get this right, uh, Pam Greer had a relationship with uh, Richard Pryor and she was visiting her 
gynecologist, and the gynecologist informed her that she had uh, cocaine in her uh, in her private area, in her vagina. Her vagina. You can say it on the on the. Yes, I can say it on my own show. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't consider terms like vagina and clitoris uh, to be uh, dirty tangents. But then, you know, that's just me. Um, but. <laughs> Oh no, I'm not. I'm not offended or anything. It's just uh, you're not. It's no. Well, we still have a few minutes left. Maybe we, we do have a few minutes up. left. I can come up with something to offend you. I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know, we, well, we haven't even started talking about Robert Evans yet, whose oh, career God. as a producer really took off thanks to. Oh boy, talk about offensive. There you sure. go. <laughs> you pop on that, that pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> yes, um, Bob was. Uh, he he was a. Uh, Yes, well, yes, well, um, you know, Bob Evans was the was the son of a dentist, I think, in uh, from um, it wasn't even in Midtown, but uh, uh, but you know, he came to Hollywood and uh, has famously uh, bandied about the story of uh, uh, Norma Shearer. Uh, Lobbying to keep him in the picture as the matador in *The Sun Also Rises*, so that's where the title from you know, of his autobiography, *The Kid Stays in the Picture*, comes from. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Towns, I, I guess he's still uh, loitering around his swimming pool and his. Uh, French Chateau on cold water, um, but he's uh, done enough coke in his life probably to <laughs> deviate yeah. the uh, deviate the septums uh, of a small army, um, and you know there's uh, considerable um, clinical proof that sustained cocaine use can uh, have a, a psychotic effect on an individual. Um, uh, Evans um, Evans was, was a wheeler dealer. He was one of those guys who um, who was never able to do the trick himself, i.e. tell a story, direct a movie, or act. I mean, if you ever want a real treat and you want a, a genuine appreciation of uh, just how good an actor Jack Nicholson really is, uh, go out and get The Fiend That Walked the West, uh, Bob Evans' last starring role uh, and before he became a film executive. And you can get a taste of what really, really awful acting is all about. <laughs> Um, he, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've met Evans. I've talked with him. I've been up to his screening room and I've seen his, uh, army of, uh, come and go bimbos, but he never really impressed me very much. I mean, left to his own designs, um, what he generally came up with was crap. It was only when he connected to people who had genuine talent, like Nicholson, like Town, like Polanski, um, 
that he was able to cobble together uh, the masterpieces for which he continues to claim credit uh, decades after the fact. Uh, anyway, I know, Evans is um, Evans is one of those Hollywood preachers that uh, somehow seems to uh, engender loyalty and uh, good feeling uh, among talented or a, a pool of talented people. I mean, I thought his book, The but Kid he... Stays in the Picture, was highly entertaining. I mean, it seems a bit, a lot of it seems a bit far-fetched, and he obviously uh, likes to talk about himself in high regard very much. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, yes, that's true. And I, I don't know, you, entertaining, yes, I, I suppose, yeah. It, it's, uh, there are some great anecdotes. Um, I would submit to you that, uh, although I don't know this to be true, but knowing, you know, just how uh, addled he had become, even by the time that he wrote The Kid, the, the kid Stays in the Picture, uh, that... Uh, he probably didn't write it. Uh, my guess is that he talked into a tape recorder and uh, hired one or more people to come in and uh, turn it into uh, readable prose. Now, that's generally the, the case with most uh, celebrity authors, um, but it's got to be particularly true with uh, Evans because by the time he did write it in the early 90s, uh, he'd already been on and off the, uh, the drug wagon a half dozen times, and I don't think that he had the attention span to write a sentence, let alone a book. <laughs> uh, I guess back to Chinatown as we wrap things up here. Um, that, that was a topic we had at one point. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, All those years ago. I saw this movie I, when I saw this movie for the show. I watched it with uh, my wife, who had never seen the movie before, and she didn't really Wait a like. Second. There's an there's an ant milkshake. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Going by that logic, yeah, there's an ant milkshake. Wow, and I thought she was anti farfet frappe. I'm I'm not quite sure what parfait, her parfait. Uh, I'm not quite sure what her nickname is, but uh, with Chinatown, she's we watched it's it. Rosebud. We we watched it together and. And uh, she said, "What's the big deal? I don't get it. I don't. I don't know how to respond to that. But I do think when you look at the time, Jack Nicholson's uh, star was uh, starting to to rise at the time. Roman Polanski was a huge director at the time, and and Faye Dunaway was a big deal. And so you have all these very famous people doing a uh, doing a project that, among other things, is an homage to a." a way a city used to be, a way movies and storytelling used to be. That was a huge uh, success, you know, commercially and as well with the uh, Academy Awards. Yes, well, you, she said she didn't get it. I'm not quite sure what she meant by that. I don't know if she didn't get it. The thing, she is very frustrated with uh, movies that end on a depressing note. Like, I, I, I had her watch the original Rocky movie, and when Rocky... Uh, sort of a split decision in favor of Apollo Creed. She sort of said, what the point? What's the point? I mean, I think she likes upbeat endings, which Chinatown does not have. Really? So she's a big fan of the collected works of Jennifer Aniston? 
Yes. <laughs> oh, my. Well, I guess opposites attract, eh? Yes. <laughs> Was she raised on SpongeBob uh, SquarePants or something? Uh, she she's not quite that young, but um, she was homeschooled. But that's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, we'll have to talk about that next time. Yes. Sure. <laughs> I, well, I I uh, I I'm sorry that she feels that way, but you know, uh, if you eliminated uh, all tragedy, uh, you you'd cut the works of Shakespeare in half, I suppose, yeah. and that of just about uh, uh, every uh, decent storyteller who's come down the pike since. I, I, I don't quite know how to answer that, but um, oh, there goes the Thrasher's stomach again. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, one day. Or, or uh, I don't know, some maybe some uh, maybe Pepto Abysmal might help. I, I think the only cure is gonna require me to 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 nail egg crate foam all over this room. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that could that, that could help too. I, I suppose. Anyway, well, I, I don't know what to. I mean, um, gee, I. I I'll just say this. I mean, it doesn't look to me like we have that much time left. So let me just say this about Chinatown. I personally prize Chinatown, even though the history uh, is uh, off a bit. Um, actually, you can say it was off a lot because, as I explained, the actual water and power incident took place 25 years before Chinatown was supposed to have happened. However, you know, big however, what makes Chinatown special over and above being the best movie mystery maybe of all time is that um, it tried quite successfully, I think, to... Uh, lay claim to actual Los Angeles history. Uh, I was just watching the last of uh, the new HBO miniseries, Mildred Pierce, uh, and I, all I could think of, you know, in the back of my mind uh, while I was watching it was, you know, how well James M. Kane and then, you know, by extension, the producers of uh, this miniseries um, really, you know, told the story of Los Angeles in the first half of the 20th century. Because L.A. is a city that just doesn't have any history. I mean, it has history, but nobody wants to talk about it. It's like everything's being redeveloped. You you leave Los Angeles for five minutes and come back and uh, and everything's changed because everything's been knocked down and rebuilt. And that includes uh, its history. Um, thank God for movies like Chinatown because uh, they preserve that history. And uh, I think that's important, especially when you look at what Los Angeles has become. You know, I can't recall who it was who said it, but, you know, some great mind in the past. Um, I don't know, maybe Johnny Carson, there's a great mind. I don't know. 
but some somebody did uh, once say that uh, you you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been, and that may be what's wrong with Southern California in general. You know, ninety nine percent of the people who live there do not know where they've been. Mm. But movies like Chinatown, if they'll just take the time to sit down and watch it, will tell them. Well, uh, Dennis, thanks for uh, coming on the sequel cast to talk about uh, Chinatown with us. I uh, just had one last question for you. It looks like your uh, next project coming up is a biography on uh, Bob Dylan. That is correct. I just... uh published a uh, novel uh, a few months ago, and uh, I have been working for the last year and a half on uh, Things Have Changed, The Lives of Bob Dylan. I'll probably turn in a manuscript later this year. Would you say looking at a, uh, doing a biography of a musician as opposed to a uh, an actor, would you say it's a different challenge trying to uh, interpret someone's life through music than film? Well, sure, there's going to be some differences, but, you know, what they have in common uh, is that they are both, um, you know, I don't like the word artists. I mean, I'm sure that they do. I know Jack does, likes to think of what he does as art and that he is an artist. And I suppose uh, Dylan does too, maybe less so. Um, but what they do have in common is that they, uh, they're both um, expressing themselves uh, and their time through uh, a, a particular medium. In Jack's case, uh, film, and in uh, little Robert Zimmerman's case, uh, music. So... There are a lot of touchstones. I mean, I think there's uh, there are more similarities than there are differences in terms of uh, who they are, what their objectives are, uh, and uh, what their life journeys turn out to be. And, um, you know, I'm a strong believer in kind of a Freudian approach in terms of uh, understanding who people are and why it is they do what they do. So I look. I take a very hard look at their earliest years and uh, their families and how they relate to um, how they relate to siblings, how they relate to their their communities growing up. Because I think it tells a great deal about who it is that they eventually become. So um, differences, sure, but. In a lot of ways, they're much the same. All right. Okay, guys. Um, Glad to have you on. Yeah, get some acoustic tile for that home office, Thrasher. <laughs> okay. Talk to you again. Yep, bye. bye. See ya. All right. That was pretty cool, huh? Yes, and so it concludes our coverage of Chinatown. Yeah. Next week, we'll be uh, looking at the, uh, the two Jakes. So... Uh, which is a sequel to Chinatown. A lot of people don't realize it was in development for over a decade until it was finally released in 1990. And it's the last of three films so far Jack Nicholson has directed in his career.
So, uh, Thrasher, do you have any closing thoughts on Chinatown? Well, you know what I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, when your uh, when your wife had said that she she didn't get it, you just turned to her. Forget it, Indiana. It's Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's one of those Chinatown is one of those films that is so part it is so much a part of American film that it's one of those movies that you assume you've seen mm-hmm. even if you've never actually seen it it's achieved it's achieved the it's achieved obscurity through greatness uh, or greatness through obscurity I'm not sure exactly uh, how to phrase that properly right I mean it's one of those things you know when I sat down to watch it I sort of had to retrain myself how to watch a movie because with sequel cast uh, I'm so used to watching Pitch Black or Ninja Turtles 3 or Rambo 4 or, or something where, you know, they're all movies, of course, but some movies require more uh, attention than others. And certainly a detective film, especially one like Chinatown, or as we'll talk about next week with the two Jakes, you have such dense plots, such complex interrelationships between the different characters. That is something you really have to sit up and almost need a notebook to take notes, to pay mm, attention. Yeah. To see what does this clue mean? How is this person lying? Are they telling the truth? Thanks. Uh, talk to you later. Thanks, Uncle Milkshake. It's Chinatown. It's Chinatown. The sequel cast airs Wednesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific time on Cascadia.fm online internet streaming radio you can also download episodes of the sequel cast from www.sequelcast.com 